From APM Reports, this is Educate, a collaboration with The Heckinger Report. I'm Stephen Smith. This is a kindergarten class in Tyler, Texas. Mrs. Lemus claps to get the kids' attention and then asks them to come and sit on a rug at the front of the room. Go to the carpet, please. Everybody sit on the carpet. It's a bilingual class. The kids are working on sentences in English and Spanish. La escuela es bonita. It is Texas Public School Week, and they have been learning about school. What do you learn about the public schools in Texas? We don't have to pay. We have free education. The kids learned that public education is free. But that has not always been true for all of the children in this Texas town. For a short time years ago, some kids had to pay or they weren't welcome. And that's why our producer, Catherine Winter, went to visit Tyler. Catherine, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So what happened in Tyler, Texas, years ago? What happened is that back in the 1970s, the schools in Tyler started charging tuition to undocumented children. And that eventually led to a landmark case in the United States Supreme Court. It's called Plyler versus Doe. And you are reporting on that case, and its aftermath as part of a documentary we are releasing this summer. Uh, that program will be about students whose parents brought them to the U.S. illegally when they were children and who now want to go to college. Uh, you went to Tyler, Texas this spring. Is it a border town? Actually, no. It's near Dallas. It's it's known as the rose capital of Texas. It used to be a center for rose growing, and they do still grow some roses there, although not so many. And there's a fancy rose festival every year where wealthy families sponsor their daughters to be rose queen or some kind of lesser royalty. And there's a parade and there's a tea. So those roses are a draw for tourists, but the rose nurseries have also been a draw over the years for workers from Mexico. I talked to a woman named Lydia Lopez. She and her husband came to Tyler more than 40 years ago and worked in the rose nurseries. They left their kids with the grandparents in Mexico, but eventually they sent for the children, and then they put them in school. Lydia Lopez is telling me the story of how one day back in 1977, her children were sent home from school because they didn't have papers proving they were born in the United States. Texas passed a law in 1975 saying the state would not pay for undocumented kids to go to school. Some school districts stopped letting those children attend. Tyler let them stay at first, but in 1977 the district decided that if undocumented kids wanted to keep coming to school, their families would have to pay tuition, $1,000 per kid per year. And there was no way the Lopez family could afford that. Lydia Lopez says one day, not long after the kids were sent home, a man named Michael McAndrew came to her house. And who was Michael McAndrew? Mike McAndrew was a Catholic social worker, and he worked with immigrant families. I just found it, you know, completely and totally out of the ordinary that you'd take a child and keep him from going to school. It just didn't make sense to me. Mike McAndrew told Lydia Lopez that she could fight her kid's expulsion. She told him, we can't. My husband and I don't have papers. And they didn't have any money. But Mike McAndrew got them a lawyer. My name is Larry Daves, and I'm an attorney practicing now down in Trinidad, Colorado. Larry Daves was in Texas back then, and he took the case for the Lopez's and for three other families, too. All they wanted to do was get an education, you know, and uh, that's, all, that's all they wanted. I, I don't think they had in, in mind trying to change the world or, or anything. All they wanted to do 
was to get a basic education so they would have a fair chance in life. Larry Dave says his clients had to be brave to come forward and file the suit. Every client I've ever had, particularly in a civil rights case, I've tried to dissuade them from doing the case. You have to have just extraordinary will to actually want to go in there and take on the system and expose yourself to everything you're exposed to in in litigation. And, And, of course, in this situation, on top of that, this worry about being deported. Larry Daves persuaded the judge to let the families proceed as John Doe plaintiffs to protect them from publicity in the community. But the judge said he couldn't shield the families from deportation if the Immigration Service came after them. On the day of the hearing, the Lopez family packed their belongings in a car, even a black-and-white TV. They were afraid there would be immigration agents at the courthouse. But there weren't. Larry Daves remembers all the children sitting on a bench in the courtroom. These were kindergarten and first-grade age kids, and uh, they were just the most well-behaved kids I had ever seen. They, They were just so quiet. They were just so sweet and adorable. Kind of hard to rule against sweet and adorable kids. Right, and the judge didn't. He ruled in favor of the families, and the children went back to school for free. And that was the last the families heard about the whole thing for a long time. But the case wasn't over. The school district appealed. And as I understand it, it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Their lawyer, Larry Daves, got help from an organization called MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. I got to talk to the person who was the head of MALDEF at the time. Her name is Vilma Martinez, and she was really a fascinating person. She's in Los Angeles now, but she grew up in San Antonio, Texas. When I was a little girl in uh, San Antonio, Texas, life was quite segregated. And, uh, for example, when we went to um, the movie theaters, we would, unless we went to the Spanish-language movie theater, we would have to sit upstairs and not allowed into the main part of the movie theater. Because she was a Latina. Yes. People call it Juan Crow because it was like the Jim Crow laws in the South. She told me a number of stories like that, like when people from her church weren't allowed to use a park for a picnic. So I just, um, you file away those things and remember them and figure out, well, what could I do about that? Vilma Martinez went to law school in the 1960s, back when only 5% of law school grads were women. She went on to lead MALDEF in the 1970s, and she told me she still remembers when she got a memo about this case out of Tyler, Texas. She thought... This is going to be a tough case to win. Sometimes, even though you think you're going to lose, you have to go forward. And my thinking was, if ever there was such a case, this was it. Because how could we just stand by and let an entire generation of of children go uneducated? So why did she think they were likely to lose? Well, the lawyers for the families were arguing that Texas's law was unconstitutional. They said it violated the children's right to equal protection guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. But before this case, the Supreme Court had never held that undocumented immigrants were covered by the right to equal protection. So in that sense, the law was not on their side. And there was a lot of concern about immigration then, too. TV stories from the time talked about children pouring into Texas schools from across the border. Every night, hundreds of Mexicans try to enter this country illegally. 
Texas says to provide them free education will only encourage more to come. Texas argued that paying for these kids' education would mean taking resources away from children who were citizens. But the lower courts didn't buy that argument, and some of the Supreme Court justices didn't either. You can listen to the oral arguments online. There's a great site called Oye with audio and transcripts. And in this case, you can hear the justices give the lawyers a pretty hard time. Some of the justices asked the lawyers for the state of Texas and the school district, so if we rule in your favor, does that mean the state could deny undocumented immigrants other rights guaranteed in the Constitution, like the right to a fair trial? They asked if the state could deny immigrants other services, like police protection or garbage collection. Here's Justice Thurgood Marshall talking to school district lawyer John Hardy. Could Texas deny them fire protection? Deny them fire protection? Yes, sir. F-I-R-E. Okay. If, uh, if their home is, uh, if their home's on fire, their home's going to be protected with the local well, fire could, services. Just but could Texas pass a law and say they cannot be protected? I don't believe so. Why not? If they can do this, why couldn't they do that? Because I, I'm going to take the position that, uh, that that's an entitlement of the, of the, Justice Marshall, let me think a second. You, uh, that's a, I, I don't know. That's a that's tough question. Somebody's house is more important than his child. And this seems to be a key thing that swayed the court, that the case was about children, children who had not chosen to come here. In 1982, the justices ruled for the families, five to four. Justice William Brennan wrote the decision. He said failing to educate these children would lead to higher state costs in the long run from unemployment and welfare and crime. Justice William Brennan said that children were innocent parties brought here illegally by others and likely to stay. He said the state law would save little financially while infecting the nation with a subclass of illiterates within our boundaries. Even the four dissenting justices thought the Texas law was a bad idea. They just didn't think it was the place of the court to intervene. The Texas governor at the time was William Clemens, and he told reporters he was unhappy about the ruling. I don't think there's any question at all that... uh that once again we have created a situation uh, here that makes uh, illegal immigration, primarily from Mexico, of course, that's what we're talking about, uh, attractive. The lawyer for the school district, John Hardy, still practices law in Tyler. He initially said he'd be glad to talk to me about the case, but then he stopped returning my calls and emails, so I'm not sure what happened. But about 10 years ago, he gave an interview about the case to Education Week. I thought that my strongest argument And I guess today I still feel that my strongest argument is that if you break a law, do you then become entitled to the same benefits uh, as those people that have not broken a law? And and I really always had a hard time with that, and I don't think that anybody wanted to make the children criminals, but but for the criminal act of the parents, uh, the, the children would not have been here in the country. But that did not sell to enough justices. So the effect of this decision was that undocumented children, not just in Texas, but all over the country, that they can attend public schools for free. Right. The schools can't even ask them about their documentation. But that's a close decision, 5-4. Have there been attempts over the years to overturn it or to roll back its protections? Yes. But so far, none of those has been successful. Probably the most well-known of these is California's Proposition 187. California voters approved Prop 187 back in 1994, 
and it barred undocumented people from receiving a lot of services, including free public schooling. It was quickly blocked by the courts, but during the debate about it, reporters in California got interested in the Plyler case, and they got in touch with some of the families in Texas. We were contacted by L.A. Times, and that's the first time that I, that I knew that the case had actually made it to the Supreme Court. That's Alfredo Lopez, Lydia Lopez's son. He was one of those kids who looked adorable on the bench in the courtroom 40 years ago. Alfredo Lopez told me that after that hearing, back in 1977, he and his siblings went back to school, and they didn't think any more about it. They just assumed their case was over. He didn't know anything about the Supreme Court decision and the sweeping effect their case had. I guess it was something that my parents and, I don't know, the other three families, what they did, I guess, ended up being uh, pretty important. So... I guess for that, uh, we are thankful. What Alfredo Lopez said about not knowing how important the case was until later, that's true of some of the other family members, too. I talked to Laura Alvarez. Her parents were also plaintiffs in the case, and she told me that after she finished high school, a Spanish-language TV station got a hold of her to ask about the case, and that was the first time she realized what her mom and dad had done. I mean, you know, kids take so much for granted, But when I found out about the case and everything, it was just such a gift to me. It was. It was the best gift anyone had ever given me. Because I wouldn't be who I am today without that education. So, Catherine, what happened to Laura and to the other kids in the case? Well, Laura Alvarez is a citizen now, and so is Alfredo Lopez, and so is his mom, Lydia Lopez. And that's kind of what Justice Brennan predicted in his opinion in the Plyler case, that undocumented immigrants would probably stay here and possibly become citizens, and so it didn't make sense to leave them uneducated. Vilma Martinez, who ran the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund back then, she told me that she counts the case as one of the most important things Maldef worked on during her time there. What made it so important is that a generation, and I guess now more than a generation, of students are educated. And that is something no one and nothing takes away from you. I feel very strongly about that. So they have that. They will always have that. One thing that struck me when I went to Tyler, this is this landmark legal case. It affected kids all over the country, And there are a lot of students in Tyler right now who are able to go to school because of this case. And yet hardly anybody I talked to there had ever heard of it. There were a couple of school administrators who knew about it, but even people who had directly benefited from it, people who came through the Tyler schools without papers, had never heard of this case. I met a young woman named Diana Hernandez, whose mom brought her to Tyler from Mexico when she was a baby. My mom, I remember she, her, her biggest dream was for me to just, you know, have a better education, graduate high school, and just get a job, like, at a bank or something. That was, that was her thing. That was her way of, like, a step up of what I would have been in Mexico where I wouldn't have been able to get an education. Diana Hernandez told me she feels very blessed with the opportunities she's had. But her story really shows the limits of the Plyler case. She was a star student top 10% of her class, National Honor Society. And she told me that she always figured that when she finished high school, she'd go to college. 
And I would remember hearing my friends, and they're all like, oh, I'm going to go here, and I'm going to go there. And I'm just like, I want to go too. And I would tell my mom, but she was always like, you can't. Like, you're not allowed to. And I was just like, why? It's not that she can't go to college, but it would be more expensive for her because she's undocumented. I'm not able to apply for financial aid. Then there's no FAFSA for us and very few scholarships. The Plyler decision made it illegal for schools to treat undocumented students differently from U.S. citizens. But the decision only applied to K-12 schools. College is a whole different story. And in the years since the decision, courts have allowed states to do things like require undocumented immigrants to pay out-of-state tuition at colleges or to make those students ineligible for scholarships. So is that what Texas did? Texas is actually one of the states that allows undocumented students to pay in-state tuition. And undocumented students can even get some state aid in Texas. But paying for college was still going to be too much for Diana Hernandez. And since she's not a citizen, she couldn't get a federal Pell Grant. I remember crying and crying because my friends, they were all, I mean, they, they had all their lives set up. Like, well, they're going to go here and they're going to go out of town, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, I don't want to just graduate. And what am I going to do with that? Let me see if I understand this. Diana had a right to go to school, but she doesn't have a right to go to college. So what happened to her? What's she doing? You know, we've talked to a lot of students in Diana's shoes who had to give up their college dreams. Most undocumented young people don't go to college. But she's one of the success stories. She told me that there was one scholarship she was eligible for that didn't require her to have a social security number. It's a private scholarship that goes to a top minority student. Very competitive. And she got it. So she's going to Tyler Junior College now. It's a full ride. Her tuition is covered, and she's planning to transfer to UT Tyler to finish up. She wants to be a teacher, and she's already working as a tutor in a local school. She told me she wants to give something back to her community. And she wants to support her mom, so her mom won't have to work in the Rose Nurseries anymore. Catherine Winter is a producer and editor with APM Reports. Thank you, Catherine. You bet, Stephen. Thanks for having me. We'll be hearing more about the Plyler case in our upcoming documentary. It's called Shadow Class, College Dreamers in Trump's America. It follows undocumented college students like Diana in the early months of the Trump administration. Paying for college could be tougher for all students if the budget that was just proposed by President Trump goes through. Producer Suzanne Pico called up reporter Nicole Dobo from our partner, The Heckinger Report, to find out more. Hi, Nicole. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us today. So Trump's budget proposal comes out and there are a lot of cuts to the Department of Education. How big are these cuts? Huge. Um, They're talking about eliminating uh, more than 20 programs altogether. It's a $9.2 billion overall cut to federal education spending. How does that compare to what other presidents have asked for? This is a lot bigger of a cut. Um, it's, it's much different than the Obama budget or even uh, President Bush's budget. We're looking at the uh, Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, wanting a very limited role for the Department of Education, and she's acted on that mission. So let's get into it a little bit. What are some of the biggest shifts and priorities that are signaled by this proposal? It's no secret that the Trump administration is on record as being a big fan of vouchers, which give uh, students taxpayer money to attend private schools. 
There is new funding for voucher pilot programs and also for charter schools, which are publicly funded but privately run schools. Let's drill down even further on K-12. What are some of the most surprising shifts for K-12 in this budget? Yeah, we're seeing a a wholesale elimination of after-school programs, cuts for uh, things like the Special Olympics, a complete elimination of the teacher training program. These are very popular programs, and um, you're seeing pushback from school leaders, even um, some that are on record as being Trump supporters. Um, For instance, the state superintendent in Idaho, who is a Republican, came right out and said she's no longer on board with the Trump administration's plan for education. And she said it will harm her state. You also have um, Chiefs for Change, which was founded by Governor Jeb Bush, being on record as saying they're deeply disappointed in the cuts. And what about higher education? What are the biggest changes to that funding in this budget proposal? Yeah, um, well, we're going to see potentially uh, if this passes unchanged, which is, you know, of course, not a sure thing. Um, Congress controls the purse strings. But what um, the Trump administration has put forth is they want to cut work-study programs in half for college students. They want to eliminate the Perkins loans. What what are the Perkins loans? Basically, the federal government will pay interest on loans for – poor students while they're in school, this budget would eliminate those payments. Is there anything in there about uh, Pell Grants? Yes. um, Pell Grants, which provide, you know, money that poor students don't have to pay back. Um, There is a bright spot in there in that they are pushing for year-round Pell Grants before students could get them in the fall and the spring, but they couldn't get a Pell Grant for the summer. This budget includes money uh, for a summer Pell Grant program. And so you said that there's been some criticism. How is DeVos responding to these criticisms? Well, she attended a hearing in Washington, D.C., and she is defending her budget as she's called it, quote, a historic investment in American students. That's how the Department of Education is framing this budget. They say that it will put the power back in the hands of state and local leaders and uh, eliminate federal control. If it doesn't go through, if it's not approved as written, Will it still have an effect on what programs Congress decides to fund or cut? Yeah, I mean, I think it will. And, you know, another issue we have here is we have school district leaders who rely on this money and plan around this money, and they're going to be sort of frozen in place almost. Um, You know, they're not going to want to create, for instance, a whole teacher training program or plan a teacher training program if they don't know the money's going to be there or not from the federal government. So um, what we're going to see, you know, sort of what the Main Street impact will be is there's going to be a lot of uncertainty for, for local school districts around how much money is going to be coming for programs that were pretty much something they could count on every year in at least some form. Well, thanks so much, Nicole. Thanks. That was Nicole Dobo, a reporter with The Heckinger Report. She was speaking with associate producer Suzanne Pico. The Educate podcast is edited by Chris Julin, and our senior producer is Emily Hanford. Thanks to our partner, The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.